This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. It's Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. With Dave Hughes away, you have to put up with me, Guy Clark in the host seat. With scouting guru Josh Williams showing versatility Jurgen Klopp would be proud of on hand to give his insight and tactical breakdowns alongside me. Josh, I've seen you playing football and I think you could probably fit into one of those number eight positions in the half spaces, but not so sure about the sticks. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing okay, mate, yeah. But uh, I think today I'm actually in my preferred role. I think you're the man to host. Better than, certainly better, better than I am, so um, I think we're both in strong roles today. So what's that, coming in off the flanks? In off the left onto your right, is that preferred role? Probably, yeah. Yeah, that's say so. A little bit of uh, Luis Diaz, Sadio Mane in me, yeah. Yeah, nice one. And as good you mentioned, Luis Diaz, we're going to talk a bit about him. We're going to have a bit of a Carabao Cup flavour to start with and talk about Liverpool landing their first piece of silverware of the season. As you saw with our thumbnail, we are, of course, going to talk about Liverpool's quadruple chances, assess how complete this squad is that Jurgen Klopp has and the depth of it and whether it truly is up to creating footballing history. And finally, before we go, we will touch on West Ham United, and in particular, a certain Jared Bowen, given the links that there have been over him to a move to Anfield in the past. But as ever, keeping up kind of our, our themes agenda as we do these days on analysing Anfield. And Josh, then I have to say, let's let's crack into the Carabao Cup. And uh, what a penalty shootout that was. It was a crazy penalty shootout, yeah. Yeah. Um... I must admit, as a, as a supporter, I'm not the biggest fan of them. Um, they are hard to watch, but uh, I was pleasantly surprised when he brought on Kepe. Um, and that ended up being a decisive factor, really. But yeah, I mean, there's been some, some reports, hasn't there, about, uh, I think it's Neuro 11, helping out Liverpool's penalty taking, set-piece taking and stuff like that. And certainly based on the level of the penalties, I mean, you know, if, if, if that's the help they're giving us, you know, fair play, we'll take it every day a week. Yeah, they've been there since pre-season, supposedly, haven't they? As you say, doing the neuroscience, checking out kind of the, the pressure environments. Laymans like myself would say you can never recreate that that pressure of a penalty shootout. But it obviously worked because all 11 putting their penalties away for Liverpool. But I want to get your kind of thoughts on, on Kepa coming on. As you, as you mentioned it, it there, obviously, you pour into the stats, the detail, the data. Chelsea have, have clearly done that as well and it's worked for them in the past with, with Kepa coming on but equally as much as the stats are there and, and I'm sure you may may even agree with this you might not you might point blank refuse as you and Dave often seem to allude to the data and stats are there to help support judgment and decisions not to kind of have blind faith in them and for me looking at Edouard Mendy's performance on the day he was looking unbeatable and surely that carries some psychological advantage anyway yeah, I agree. I've seen after the game that um, I think specifically Jamie Redknapp was really not in favour of that type of tactical decision. But for me personally, I'm not I'm not that against it. I think it's if it's the right strategic move, you know, make it, even though it's quite a, a bold call and things like that. I've got no major issues with it. But in this case, I do think it, it gave Liverpool the upper hand. Um, obviously, we, we know all about Kepa since he's came to England. He hasn't been particularly great. Um, you know, in his first season in the Premier League, he underperformed post shot expected goals by 3.4 goals. In his second season, he underperformed by 9.5 goals. And 
um, since then he's he's barely featured. So those numbers suggest that since he's been in England, really he he saved shots to a below average standard. That's not the same as a penalty, but uh, a saving penalty is a little bit of a different skill, I suppose. But he's not shown to be the most intimidating since he's came to England. Edward Mendy had a, a very very good game. He's just won a penalty shootout earlier in the month um, in the African Cup of Nations. So when Kepa did go off, I, I was pleasantly surprised um, and it ended up deciding the game. But yeah, it's not a bad tactical move, but in this case, I think it was. Yeah, definitely. And it played into Liverpool's advantage, so long may it continue, certainly when, when Chelsea are involved in the rivalry between the two sides in that regard. What about the game itself then? Of course, a lot made of the amount of disallowed goals within it. But I suppose in recent weeks, the talk around the high line has, has come back again. And it was kind of proven exactly why Liverpool perform with that high line that they do. I'll get your thoughts as well on Matip's goal being disallowed, but primarily kind of Liverpool's high line, which Mason Mount, albeit onside, did exploit on a couple of occasions as well. But the disallowed goals make it feel as though Liverpool were kind of living a charmed life, but actually it was the defence doing exactly what it's there to do. Yeah, it, it does very much feel like life on the edge with the, with this high line. It's, it's not so much the high line, it's the offside trap. The offside trap's what makes people, you know, on edge, if you like. Um, but it does work a lot of the time. Liverpool kept Chelsea, uh, I think, seven times. I think they, saw, they caught Chelsea offside during the game. Um, and in the Premier League this season, the most Chelsea have been caught offside in any game has been, I think, I think it was five. Uh, and that was only once. I think everyone else has been max four against Chelsea. So Liverpool posted seven. Uh, plenty of goals disallowed on the back of it. So it does make plenty of sense. But then at the same time, I've said before today, I think if I was an opposition coach, it would be what I would target. It would be what I would try and exploit as a, as an opponent. I think since I've been watching Liverpool under Klopp, up there with the best that I've seen at exploiting it have probably been Brighton. Yeah, they were they were immediately from my mind when you were saying that. I was thinking yeah. Brighton do seem to get joy against it. Yeah, I think Graham Potter seems particularly keen on on late runs, runs from midfield. Who you know, by the time they've reached Van Dijk, they've already got up ahead of steam, and they can just make that little run in behind before they get caught offside. And Brighton do seem to cause Liverpool issues when it comes to it, but most teams don't. And um, although it can look like they do. Liverpool are safe more often than not, and in the in the uh, in the final, it it paid dividends. Although it was it was a nervy watch at times. What about those occasions, kind of when Mount got in? And I suppose looking at the data, what does it what does it tell us? Was it kind of a, as even as it looked? It was a it was a brilliant spectacle, the game in itself. And I mean, you think of the saves that Edouard Mendy made from Sadio Mane. Also, kind of when Mohamed Salah chipped, was it Thiago Silva sliding back was able to to get it away? I mean. It looked as though, for all intents and purposes, it was a very even game. But, but how does the data bear it out? It, it was. Uh, the expected goals was was virtually even. Um, it was it was in and around the two for for both teams. I think at the time, um, and I, I suppose that the that is the slight issue with with the offside trap is a lot of moves will get cancelled because you cause offside. But maybe it'll, maybe the opposing team will get in once or twice over the course of the, the match, 19-minute match. Um, and that'll present usually a one-on-one with Alison Becker. Uh, thankfully, Alison's very good at dominating those 1v1s. And thankfully, on the day, Mason Monk, for whatever reason, wasn't taking his chances. Um, I was a little bit surprised at that, personally. I think he's usually usually delivers and he's scored against Liverpool before. 
Um, but yeah, it was just one of them games where where Liverpool got away with it, I suppose. Um, and Liverpool usually generates enough in attack to be able to allow the the opposing team to maybe get in once or twice around the offside snap. So yeah, it's a it's a bit of a balance knack, but I've got no issues as long as you actually use it well. And I think considering the, the defenders Liverpool have got at their disposal and the goalkeepers have got, it makes sense to take these risks. Yeah, you mentioned by and large it's Alisson Becker behind that defence. Obviously it's Quinton Keller at Wembley, but equally he was he was yeah, up to the task and that save certainly early on from Mason. That was absolutely fantastic. Let's talk at the other end of the pitch. They mentioned the Matic goal. We, we can discuss that, but equally, what about the man Luis Diaz? I mean, have you been surprised with how well he's acclimatized to being at, at Liverpool and just the, he's one of those players, isn't he? Watching, he just brings sheer joy to you. Just watching him, and you can see how much enjoyment he's actually getting himself. You just can't wait for the goals to start flowing. And for me, that's that's uh, that when, not if. Yeah, he he has made a serious impact. This this fella, um, he looks very very good. Um, like I, I I sent a newsletter out a few weeks ago when Liverpool was signing him. And in the newsletter, I, I I put out the the pros and the cons of the deal. You know the risks and the the things that should be good should be okay in that. But I, I think I concluded the newsletter at the time with this sign and tells us two things. It tells us first that Liverpool are super efficient and clinical when they want to be in the market because we just blew spares out the water without even trying by the looks of it. And second, it it. The way the deal transpired told me that Liverpool were absolutely convinced that this player was very, very, very good because Liverpool paid, you know, upwards of 50 million for him in January at the end of the window. Um, purely because a, a, a rival team, if you like, was trying to get him. Um, so for Liverpool to go and do that, considering what Liverpool's recruitment is like, I said at the time in the newsletter, Liverpool must have been really convinced that this lad was was going to be a star. And based on his early performances, he does look very, very good. In this game, he was the best player on the pitch by a mile, I thought. Um, very, very dangerous, really intense, uh, so direct, can go both ways, strong, energetic, uh, really well suited to Liverpool's 4-3-3 system as a, as a wide left player. Um so he, he looks he looks brilliant, and he, he came on last night in in the, the FA Cup against Norwich, and Lee Dixon was commentating, and Lee Dixon said something like, you know, when he was coming on, Lee Dixon said something like, yeah, yeah, we're getting we're getting fireworks here, and I thought to myself, Diaz has been in the country for four weeks, and one of the pundits is already saying he's already expecting fireworks when he comes on the pitch. It, 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 I thought it just kind of captured the impact he's made since he's uh, come to the country. You mentioned in there as well, have you been <clears throat> surprised? To, or, I mean, to me, it doesn't look, obviously he doesn't speak the language. It doesn't look as though he's fully in sync and in tune. And I, I, I mean this as a compliment. He doesn't look fully in sync and in tune with exactly, say, the pressing patterns, the exactly where he needs to be attacking at the moment. He's got a complete free role. He's off the leash because I was expecting him coming in to be quite a disciplined left winger with, who would cut in onto his right foot, who would attack the far post much like Sadio Mane. But at times he's popping up on the right wing, he's popping up through the middle, and I actually think it complements Diogo Jota expertly because Jota's not going to be 
a like-for-like replacement for Roberto Firmino as a false nine. He plays very much more on the last shoulder, but equally has a a tendency and a liking, as as he basically played at Wolves, to go out onto the left. And with Diaz, the two of them dovetail and interchange really, really well, which was something I wasn't expecting at all from from what kind of had heard and, and listened to prior to him coming in. Yeah, well, first of all, the language thing that you've just mentioned, that was one of the the cons, you know, at the time. That was one of the reasons, another one of the reasons why this is a bit of a risk, this, you know. Um, and for Liverpool to go and get him for, for upwards of 50 million in January, despite the fact he didn't even speak English, that's, it, it was a big, a big statement, that's, that's signing. And it, it's shown that it's, it makes a lot of sense to, to just go and do it because he clearly, quite, quite clearly looks like a very good player. But in terms of what you've just said there, in terms of he's kind of got a free role. One thing I really love about Liverpool's team, the system that Klopp has, has established 43 every week, is Liverpool have signed players that you could you can put in a 4-3-3 and without giving any of them a single instruction, it already works. So they already naturally complement each other. Say, for example, if you put a front three on the pitch of Mane, Firmino, Salah and Neither of them know each other. Neither of them have said a word to each other. You haven't coached any of them. You haven't told them any tactical instructions. Firmino would still naturally come away from goal into midfield. Salah and Mane would still naturally run in behind and cut inside on their preferred foot. It's So it just works naturally. And if you look at Van Dijk, Van Dijk naturally plays those switches of play, which benefits Salah. Trent naturally plays those switches of play, which benefits you know, Mane and Robertson at times. Um, so there's just, and Robertson and, and Trent, specifically Robertson, both naturally overlap, which allows, which um, complements the, the, the wide forwards when it comes to cutting inside. So it's a system that just naturally works. And if, you, if, you, if you're signing players who, without any tactical instructions, naturally complement one another, they can just go in and do what Diaz is doing. Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. You mentioning kind of the front three as we've come to know them, Salah, Firmino and, and Mane. Within what they do, there was always defined roles. It was Salah off the right, Mane off the left, Firmino dropping off and kind of a pincer attack, as it were, from wide and the fullbacks they're offering the real width with kind of Salah and Mane moving in, in kind of yeah. later into the attacks. With, with Jota playing through the middle this season, it's kind of changing. But then with, with Diaz as well, I mean, since then we've seen Mane playing through the middle even more. Salah equally is getting involved in this interchanging. To me, there seems more now fluidity at the top end of the pitch. And we'll talk about the depth of the squad as well and maybe in how the, the number eights are becoming more offensive and more attacking as well, where everyone said for so long to replace Roberto Firmino will be so difficult for Liverpool because of the uniqueness that he offers as a player. But to me, looking at it, there seems to have been a slight structural shift that actually you're not replacing a player, you're changing the system, which benefits and complements the, the attributes the other players have. Yeah, I agree. I think in the past couple of seasons, Firmino's essentially been a number 10, really. And Liverpool have almost played kind of like a weird variation of a diamond system with yeah. Firmino as a 10 and Salah and Mane as two forwards, really. But because of the... the Four three three publicity and things like that and traditional tactics, it's not perceived like that. Whereas I think now, when Firmino's not playing and Jota's in in his place or Mane's in his place, 
I think it is more of a, th- a three strikers system. Um, it is a little bit different. The, the, the central player still drops off and, and retrieves the ball in, in number 10 type spaces. But Mane and Jota are just naturally a lot more penetrative than Firmino is. So, so against Leeds, didn't you? Where Mane, sorry, just to cut in there, but Mane kept well dropping off. But equally, he was there to run in behind and win that penalty. And the, the kind of run Roberto Firmino doesn't offer. Normally, it's Mohamed Salah trying to get onto that, but I think it may have even been Salah on that occasion who played the pass and Mane ran through and, and was brought down. Yeah, well, I do, I do think against Leeds, it was more of a deliberate ploy considering the, the man marking scheme. So if, you, if, you, if you're super fluid in your position and, and you're sending Leeds players all over the place in terms of what their designated marker is, it can really disrupt their system. But I do think generally, even outside that game, Liverpool's central player in the attack when it's not been Firmino. I do think those players have, have, have rather than dropping into a number 10 space and, and operating in that little diamond system type thing, um, I think instead of doing that, they have been uh, combining that with, with runs and behind. And as I said, it's been more like a, a three-striker system rather than a, a one or two. Yeah, definitely. Right, well, we're recording off the back of the win over Norwich City for Jurgen Klopp for the first time to get into the quarterfinals of the FA Cup. So, Josh, our, our thumbnail depicts it, Jurgen Klopp, with all the trophies around him. A lot of talk this week about the quadruple. I know what you're going to say, but are you are you daring to dream? Can it be done? <laughs> um <clears throat> I don't know. It's a difficult one, isn't it? It's a difficult one to talk about, especially from an analytical perspective. But when you look at the league table, you know, we're currently six points behind Manchester City. So we haven't even... I mean, I know we've got a game in hand and then we've got to face City. So I know we can we can make that gap up fairly easily, if you want to put it that way. But the quadruple does seem way off at the minute. You know, it's, it's too early to talk about that for me. But at the same time, I do think it's achievable and I think Liverpool for the first time have the depth to dominate really, to, to win all four trophies at once in a, in a single season or certainly compete for them all. Um, I think in previous seasons that hasn't really been the case and as a, as a result of that Liverpool have kind of sensibly really um, viewed the, the calendars in a, in a bit of an economic way and targeted the, the tournaments that matter in terms of status, in terms of reputation, in terms of getting paid. So they've looked at the Premier League and the Champions League um, and the resources that have been less quality in the Liverpool squad have been dedicated to the, the, the domestic cups. But I think now Liverpool have so much depth that they can target all four without really suffering from a massive drop-off when you're competing in the main two, um, because the players who are competing in the main two don't have to play that much in the domestic cups for Liverpool to be able to get through now. You know, the Liverpool's second strings are really, really good players and, and probably staff for the majority of Premier League teams. If you look at Ibrahim Kanate and even Kelleher, you know, Simakas, um, James Milner, Curtis Jones, you know, I mean, Firmino or Jota or whoever's the league plays like this, Takumi Minamino. These are really good second string players. And I think it's possible for the quadruple, but I'm not getting carried away this year. No, no, it's, it's never been done before. So I wouldn't I wouldn't have expected you to, to say it's going to happen. But I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by the depth that now has been created within the, the Liverpool squad. Because I mean, you look at 
you look at the cup final team that initially was named, obviously Tiago was meant to be starting, picked up the injury. Thankfully, it doesn't look as though that's going to be too long. Could be back for the, the Inter, Milan, Inter Milan return game, Jurgen Klopp saying earlier in the week. But that that's probably the the strongest 11, isn't it? You, you may argue that um, Diogo Jota is, is actually a starter in the, the strongest 11, but in so many areas across the pitch, and, and sorry, Kelleher out and, and, and Alisson in for him, but you look at so many areas of the squad, and I mean, it underlines it, the fact that Joe Gomez is the fourth choice centre-back of just how, how good that is. And it was spoken so much at the beginning of the season about Jeannie Wijnaldum going and who's going to be the Wijnaldum replacement. And it's kind of Jurgen Klopp being proven right yet again, where in the in, in the press conference early on in the season, it was our former colleague James Pierce who asked him, what are you doing about replacing Jeannie Wijnaldum? And, and, and he listed off all the midfielders and said, I've got so many midfielders, I don't need a Wijnaldum replacement. Now, Harvey Elliott, who initially wasn't even going to be on the bench for the Carabao Cup final, has shown what a talent he can be. Curtis Jones continues to make improvements. Naby Keita this season, albeit yet he's not always fit, has, has really impressed me through the course of the campaign. And there is so much depth within that, that when a player of the, the de facto strongest 11 drops out, you know the player coming in is probably equally as good if not only just a fraction of a drop off. Well, what I what I love about it is Liverpool have achieved depth, the depth that we've all wanted for quite a while, but they've they've done it in a really patient way, rather than um, you know just going and splashing the money and uh, getting two players for every position as quickly as possible. But as a result of that, your second string player might not be a like for like, or might be. You might have to change the system a little bit to accommodate them type thing. Because Liverpool have, have been really patient with it and they've done it over the course of a number of windows. This the system now really does have two players for every position, apart from possibly Trent. Um but other than that, you have you know, in terms of Mane and Diaz can both offer very, very similar perks. Robertson and Simicas, very, very similar perks. Um Canate and Matup. Henderson and Fabinho, Keita and Thiago to an extent, uh, Jones, Elliot, you know, just there's so many players who can who can back up any player, any first teamer who's who's missing, um, and I think Liverpool have, have been able to do that because they've done it over the course of a number of windows and have waited for that you know to get the right players in, um, like Liverpool have been linked with a series of players over the past couple of years. And I'm sure they would have helped in terms of, you know, depth purposes. But would they be like for like in terms of being very suitable to to our four three three system? And I think doing it over time has allowed Liverpool to get players who are like that. And in terms of the the Wine Album comment that you've just made, so many people in you know, supporters and, and all that sort of stuff are, are so inclined to view transfers as transfer windows in isolation. Whereas, you know, it, it, you need to view it kind of all as one almost. Although you you separate the summer and then the winter and then the next summer and then the next winter and, and things like that. Um, it's all kind of done with the one goal of building a squad. If you see what I mean? And you, squad and, evolution, isn't it? Exactly. And I think, uh, you know, yeah. the Liverpool can't, you can't just go and get, well, you can, I suppose, but you, you, in my opinion, you can't really just go and get a player who has got, who is the right player for you, but he's got four 
years left on his contract. You know, it's it's it, you're gonna Ian Graham when I went to see a, a press conference that he gave, he just straight up said players with long contracts don't move. He just that was just a, a simple line that he gave. So Liverpool have got to target these players when the time's right. So say for example the time when um Lovren left, when Dejan Lovren left the club, we didn't replace him. But the replacement Liverpool had in mind was Ibrahim Akanate, but you couldn't we couldn't get him in that summer. So you you, you don't have to the question of like do we do we get another one now? Do we get an alternative to Kanate now? Might not be as good, might not offer as much in terms of the future. Or do we wait a year and then get Kanate in? And that's what Liverpool did. And in terms of Wine Alden, I've always thought that the Wine Alden replacement that in Liverpool's eyes was Thiago. But Thiago was available a year earlier. But if, if you see what I mean. So Thiago played alongside Wine Alden. People don't view him as a replacement because they played together. So, you know, I agree with you. I agree with you on that. And uh, listen to, I can't, I kind of would take it a step further and say there were two Vinaldum replacements within the Liverpool squad, both graduated into the team a year early, and those being Curtis Jones, who at the time was seen as Adam Lallana's replacement, and Tiago, because the age profile of Tiago, he's not going to be around for, for ages. He is only really going to be here for what, three, four seasons, as it were, and offer yeah. what he can. And in Curtis Jones, there's a, a young flair attacking midfield player who has already been hauled back into a midfield role not too dissimilar to what Jeannie Vinaldum had to do when he left Newcastle to come to Liverpool. And yet he's got the tutelage day in, day out, the example being set to watch Jordan Henderson, watch Thiago in training. And as I say, I think last year, I, I would be amazed if, if if a word of advice didn't go into Curtis Jones of be a sponge and, and soak up as much information from Jeannie Vinaldum as, as you can prior to his departure and likewise now probably looking and, and checking out what, what how the likes of, of Henderson and, and Thiago carry themselves. Yeah, that's it. That's spot on, mate. I think over the course of a two-year period, if you look at the, the, the key players who may be left in, in Lovren and, and Wijnaldum, over two years, Liverpool replaced Lovren with Canate and Liverpool replaced Wijnaldum with Thiago and also brought through Curtis Jones and also brought through Harvey Elliott. So, over the period, Liverpool have replaced these players, but it's just, you know, in isolation, windows in isolation, you haven't bought a like for like replacement like Liverpool did when Xabi Alonso left, for example. But in the same window, we went and bought Alberto Aholani. Then he's pinned as literally the Alonso replacements yeah. forever in the shadow. Um, Salah was Coutinho's replacement, but because they were, because they played together, um, you know, it, it's never been talked about like that. But Salah was the the third attacker for Liverpool's attack because we knew Coutinho was probably going to probably going to leave. Um, and and but, like you say, it's not replaced them like for like. And, and and I suppose how we go back to Roberto Firmino before. I mean, we don't want to just go in a circle. I've got a point that I want to put to you, but with Firmino, you don't just go and buy in another false nine because forevermore it's oh well, are you going to live up to what Roberto Firmino can do? Maybe you do alter. The, the attacking shape slightly and you move away from that like you say with, with Coutinho you move Manny over to the left you actually bring in another right winger and all of a sudden Coutinho then moves into a, an attacking half space which is a luxury for half a season that you can afford you cash in and and then you've got the money to go and build elsewhere in the squad it's squad building at its absolute finest and it is a work of art that forever uh, and more Liverpool will look back on and it is a true golden period that really should be absolutely um 
indulged in and, and delight should be felt by by Liverpool supporters because it is it is miraculous kind of the way in which it has been done and how every piece of the jigsaw has fitted and, and come together as it has. But the question I want to ask you, and, and when we talk about quadruples, obviously the, the big one will be the Premier League. Obviously the fans weren't in when it was secured last time and that's the parade that everybody wants to see is the, the Premier League trophy being paraded around Merseyside. But when you look at that and you look at rivals in Manchester City, I would argue now Liverpool have a more complete and, and, and deeper squad. Now, Man City, we know, spend millions and millions of pounds for two players in each position. But actually, they've probably, what, 16, 17 top high-class internationals. But this season, the more and more you look at their bench, the likes of James McAtee, Cole Palmer, uh, Liam Delap, these guys are all on the bench supplementing, having elite players in certain areas of the pitch and then really relying on, on very very inexperienced and younger players. Yes, Liverpool have had Trent come through. They've had Curtis Jones. They've developed Harvey Elliott. But I would say right now, the depth that, that Liverpool have, the squad is the best in the Premier League. Would, would you agree? Yeah, well, it's, it's a big statement. And it's, it, it's you saying that, I hadn't really thought about it, to be honest. But maybe, you know, on second inspection, you, you might have a point there. Um, I, I, I do think City's... <clears throat> City's core of 15 players, maybe, is yeah. probably slightly stronger than Liverpool's. But I understand what you mean in terms of... If, if you're going for a quadruple, you need more, <laughs> don't you? Exactly. If you're looking at a squad of 25, potentially, then I suppose Liverpool's number 16, number 17, number 18, I suppose Liverpool's are probably, probably stronger. And again, that's City's squad building the stem from them being a bit impatient, wanting to dominate immediately. So when Guardiola was appointed, they went and spent sixty million on Mares and you know they just went and splurged everywhere and things like that. And Liverpool have just allowed a bit more time to get to the same position. Um, but as of right now, Liverpool, if Liverpool was a play City, both squads had total fitness. Liverpool's first eleven, in my opinion, would be better, and Liverpool's bench would be probably equally as good. I think so. And I think what you've just been saying there about, um, you know, Liverpool's golden period and how we're finding recruitment is, I think that's, supporters should really listen to that because, you know, you're you're coming from a, an unbiased perspective. You're an Arsenal fan. So this, this is what Liverpool look like from outside. This is how, how refined Liverpool are, how squeaky clean the club is when it comes to making the right decisions, making good decisions consistently over and over and over and over again. Um, and when you do that, you can get to this this position of, of dominance. And um, it just so happens that Liverpool's period has coincided with Pep Guardiola. But if if Guardiola was not in this country, Liverpool would be properly sweeping up. Liverpool would have won. You know, maybe the past, apart from last season, obviously because things happened in terms of injuries. But Liverpool would be on at least probably two or three Premier Leagues at the minute. Um, they'd be on course for another one this season. And, um, Klopp would be on a fair few more trophies than he's than he's currently got. So, I think uh, I think you're right. Liverpool have uh, are dominating at the minute and really making good decisions on and off the pitch. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I, I do find it fascinating, Klopp and, and Guardiola. I think they do push. Each I agree. Other. Yeah. I think you've seen evolutions within Klopp tactics that have very much come because of Manchester City and likewise I think Guardiola as much as he probably wouldn't admit it has tweaked and, and subtly changed his system due to the uh, the envious glances he's probably sent towards Anfield looking at what Jurgen Klopp has done but as you say I mean 
the recruitment of it, there is rarely a foot put wrong. In fact, I'm struggling to think Naby Keita may well not have, have played to being the third most expensive player in, in Liverpool's history. But equally, the talent is there and he certainly more than does a job within the squad. And, and at the end of the day, that is what we're talking about here is a squad that has been built. I mean, as you say, not as a Liverpool fan, but I rarely get excited when other Premier League rivals sign a player. But when Luis Diaz arrived, I have to say I was very excited because you know, due to what you've outlined with everything before, if Liverpool are spending £50 million, if they're doing it mid-season and this is a guy who's already got international calibre, um, you know he's going to be a pretty useful signing. And, and that's certainly how it played out. Before we go, though, Josh, we best look to the weekend and talk a bit about West Ham United. Of course, we don't really go too thoroughly in depth these days on kind of opposition previews, but it was one game earlier in the season that Liverpool did lose at the London Stadium. So maybe a bit of an axe to grind it in that one. And uh, West Ham this season continuing, I suppose, to, uh, to surprise a few and continuing in kind of their hunt for a potential top four finish. Yeah, well, myself and Dave did uh, predictions at the start of the season. And I think we did just, um, you know, surprise teams, surprise players, you know, ones to watch, all that sort of stuff. And my, my tip was West Ham. Um, I do think, I, I did think at the time that maybe go a little bit better. But I had pretty, I was pretty confident he wouldn't drop off. Um, because if you look at the squad that Moises constructed, again, this goes back to recruitment, just making good decisions when it comes to recruitment. And, uh, I think I think Moyes is really he, 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 what he's done is he's he signed a number of hits in the transfer market, the likes of Ben Rahmer and Bowen and um you know, players like this, Suchek. Suchek, Kufal. Yeah, all all of these. And then Craig Dawson. Yeah. And then and then once once you establish this core, and Arsenal have done this as well. Once once you establish this core, Arsenal have got this core right now. You just get to a point where you just just don't make any mistakes. You, you don't have to go and start, start buying five players every window now. You've got your core ready. So just don't sign any flops. Just don't make any mistakes because if you do, you then take two steps back. So I think Moyes, you know, he was tempted to, he tried to sign the likes of Calvin Phillips, for example, in uh, in, in January. Uh, Darwin Nunes as well from Benfica. Couldn't get them, so he didn't get anyone else. If you look at Arteta, went inside to get Vlahovic. Couldn't get him. So rather than going and getting someone else, you just decided to wait because the cause established, Everton's fine. Just don't make any mistakes. Um, and I think Liverpool have, have been great at doing that. But um, coming up against West Ham this weekend, you know, we, we, we are coming up against a team on the rise and I think they will do well this summer, to be honest, to keep hold of, of some of their star players, such as Declan Rice and obviously Jared Bowen. Yeah, let's talk about Jared Bowen a bit then. Um before that, just a word on David Moyes. I think he's, I think he's proven himself as a Premier League manager at being an, a, a really shrewd. His talent ID is very strong. Always was at Everton. He didn't have much money to spend, and therefore was meticulous in the signings he made. At Manchester United, probably wasn't even afforded the time to even get his, his set up in place for that. And we're not here to talk about Manchester United, so so let's leave that. But at West Ham, he really has rediscovered his his touch, as it were, and in the transfer market is really where he does operate very very well. And one tricky he has always had go back to Tim Cahill at Everton or now Jared Bowen at West Ham United is this ability to pick up players from the championship in particular and really polish them up and, and get them going. And, and Jared Bowen, I mean, talk, talk about him in terms of the ceiling he's now hit. And do you think he's at 
the, the peak of his powers? Or do you think there's even more that could be eked out because Jurgen Klopp's a known admirer of him? Could you see him fitting in at Liverpool? Should should that happen? Or do you think it is just admiration from, from Jurgen Klopp? No, I could, yeah. Um, I think if you look at Liverpool's system, obviously we've mentioned that Liverpool have got two players for every position. They've got like for likes across the board. They don't really have a like for like for Trent. I suppose Milner can do bits. Um, Nico Williams can do bits, but you, Trent, you're not you're not really finding a a like for like alternative to Trent. And similar, you could say for Salah, because Salah is Liverpool's only left-footed forward. Um, Harvey Elliott has been converted into a midfielder, so he doesn't count really. And do you think just on that very quickly? Do you think Harvey Elliott has the physicality in terms of? And, and, and maybe, yeah, obviously he's still a teenager, his, his body developing, maybe he will find that. But to me, he doesn't have that electric burst that, for example, a Bowen has. And maybe that's why at elite Premier League level, a midfield option suits his, his attributes better. Yeah, and that's that's exactly why I think he's been converted into a midfielder. Um, because I don't think he's as quick. I don't think he's as much of a threat in behind. And although we think he's a top attacker, I don't think he's obsessed with just delivering, if you know what I mean. Um, I think he's a bit more creative than he is a scorer. So if that's the case, just moving back a little bit from goal, but keeping him in your squad, playing in midfield rather than in your attack. In midfield, the, the expectation on his shoulders to deliver goals and assists is a little bit lower, but he can still contribute in there. So, But yeah, he's left-footed anyway, so he, he's playing in midfield. He doesn't really count as a salad alternative too much. Cade Gordon, Potentially does, but Kate Gordon's 17, so he's too young. So, despite the as a signing, I think if you're looking at two players for every position, Liverpool could possibly still do with an alternative left footed forward to Salah. Uh, and Bowen would tick that box. Bowen is left footed, even though he's very two footed as well. Still just 25 when he turned 25, 73 days ago. Um, and if you look at his if you look at his season, I think he's playing I think he's very, very similar to Jota. Because because Jota, when he was at Wolves, there was a lot of expectation on the Wolves forwards in terms of not only scoring and assisting, but just doing so much running, so much counter attack and so much running up the pitch. And I think Bowen's similar. Bowen has to do a lot outside of scoring and assisting. And I think if he was to come to Liverpool like Jota since he's came to Liverpool where the ball's usually in the attacking half, usually in the final third. He can dedicate more of his energy to just putting the ball in the net. And I think he's got that wide forward profile about him where he can play where Salah plays and score fairly often. I mean, if you look at his numbers over the course of his career, it was pretty obvious that he was going to stick out to Liverpool when you think about it. Because as a 20-year-old for Hull, he scored 14 goals in the Championship. Then the following season, he scored 18 goals in the championship. This is excluding penalties. And the following season after that, he scored 16 in the championship. And these is, this is all from a wide role. Then he was moved that, to West Ham. I was going to say that 16 as well. That was that was in half a season, though, because he moved mid-season. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, and then he moved to West Ham. And last season, he scored eight. And this season, he scored eight. But I do think if, if you were to put him in a... A dominant side like Liverpool, maybe his numbers would move away from the eights and closer to the the whole numbers scoring, you know, in the teens every every season. So 
I do think he makes he's, he's homegrown as well in English, so homegrown's obviously a nice perk when it comes to a Brexit transfer market. Um, but it just depends on his contract. I think he's contracted for another three years, so he could be difficult to to land. And I think if Rafinha gets relegated, he also ticks that left footed um, box. So, but it depends if Liverpool wants an alternative to Salah because Salah out of the historic front three at Liverpool. Salah is the most likely to sign a new deal. Salah's the most driven in terms of wanting to play every single match. Salah's never injured. So maybe Liverpool don't need that that left foot forward as much as... Because Mane can play there. Jota can play there. So it just depends whether Liverpool really, really wants two players literally everywhere or whether they think they can get by with the current front five. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I suppose there's been talk as well that Liverpool may need more homegrown players and obviously that's another one Bowen ticks. But as you say, three and a half years left on his deal, only last month, reports coming out that actually West Ham are trying to to pin him down to an extension on top of that. So as you say, that would prove very difficult. But I mean, even going forward on that and mentioning the homegrown thing, you mentioned Kai Gordon, there's Bobby Clark as well, who's been signed. Liverpool already seem to be having the next phase of the evolution of the squad building of all of these young players in the squad, even someone like Mateusz Musilowski, who's in the academy, by the time he reaches 21, will count as a homegrown player who's come through the system and therefore be ticking off that criteria as well. Liverpool aren't going to be boxed into a corner and pinned into Jared Bowen's the only option, it's him or no one. As you say, if Rafinha were to get relegated with Leeds, I'm sure Liverpool are keeping very, very wide eyes on, on that kind of situation. Yeah, well, Klopp said in his press conference recently it's about Liverpool's transfer dealings. He just kind of said it's about signing the right players, but at the right time. And I go back to the point that I made earlier, the long contracts thing. Players on long contracts just don't move. So I think Bowen, he's contacted until 2025. I don't think that's long enough where he wouldn't, he fully wouldn't move. Uh, I think he could probably be landed. But I'm not sure how much he'd cost if he's got three years left on his deal because... Usually Liverpool would aim for two years left on the deal or less. Um, and I think Rafinha is, is that. And you could argue Leeds are in a bit of a worse bargaining position than West Ham as well, who are, who are getting European football and things. So, But I do think Bowen is, in terms of profile, I think he's I think he's spot on as to what Liverpool um, tends to go for and what, what type of player that tends to thrive in Liverpool's system. Um, and I think despite the airs arriving, I do think there's still an opening up there for a, a left-footed forward, potentially, if Liverpool want to do it. What about Declan Rice, then? Last one we'll talk about before we, we get off. We'll get a prediction from you before we go as well for the game, albeit we've not really previewed that that much. But he is the fulcrum of West Ham. I mean, I, for one, was a bit surprised that he was made such a central figure within the England squad, certainly during the summer and during the Euros. But this season, I have to say, game in game, watching him, he's been absolutely tremendous. And famously David Moyes has whacked this £100 million price tag on him Manchester United and, and Chelsea both very much looking at it I can't see Liverpool entertaining £100 million on, on one signing at all but equally is he is he worth the hype is he worth the price tag like what what have you made of him so far this season or is this kind of a, a Harry Maguire trap too that Manchester United might fall into to be honest I, I think any player could go down the high Maguire route if he goes to Old Trafford just just because of how that club tends to do things. But 
I th- I do I do like rice. I'll be honest, and I think I've in in the past eighteen months in particular, I've really picked up on his developments as a player. He's a lot better on the ball. Uh, seems a lot more mature, uh, a lot more of a leader, and things like that. Gets around the pitch um, unbelievably as well, doesn't he? I mean, your yeah, well, your 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 handle is distance covered. That's, that's basically <laughs> what it is on the tin for him. Yeah, well, I was going to say his, his ability to cover ground is right up there. And sometimes when you attacking coaches in particular, they like to have that holding midfielder who can just cover the ground of two men essentially. Uh, Henderson can kind of do it. Fernandinho could do it under Aris Pomp under under Guardiola. Um, players like Kante, Wilfred and Didi. When you've got holding players who can really cover ground, Fabinho is actually not as much like that. But when you've got holding players who can cover lots and lots of ground, to an extent you can just empty the midfield and everyone can just kind of go on attack. Um, and I think Rice is, is a similar similar skill set to be to, be, to allow his, his attacking teammates with a platform to to just kind kind of go and do what they want really. Um, but he, he is looking like a really good player, and obviously he's using. Well, he's English slash Irish. He's one of the two, isn't he? Um, he's homegrown, obviously, which which is nice. And he's still only twenty three, so he could be doing it for you know for the next decade, really. Um, but he's contract until twenty twenty five. It looks like I think West Ham have an extra year to to trigger potentially if they want to to take it to twenty twenty five. So if he was going to get bought, it would be for you know astronomical amounts really and that just places a lot of pressure on the player um, then will he be get, getting used properly in a tactical sense by that team considering they haven't been that refined in the sense of America to pay that much for him so I don't know I think we, we flagged a player a, a couple of months back called uh, Alan Chiuameni Liverpool were linked with him yeah. uh, according to David Ornstein I think that is the perfect example of what Liverpool would usually do compared to what United would usually do. Liverpool will go and get many who's got less of a contract in terms of length, and you could probably get him for I don't know fifty million minus less than fifty million something like that. Whereas United would go and get Rice for eighty million plus, and he would probably do slightly less than many on the pitch. If you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I do like Rice, but. If he gets picked up this summer, I'd be curious to see what clubs doing that and um, what the plan is and and stuff. Because I don't think Liverpool would do it. And usually, based on the past couple of years, if Liverpool wouldn't do it, it's probably a bad move to be honest. Like when Liverpool um, went and signed Diaz, my the perception in my head of Diaz changed drastically from when Spurs were targeting him to when Liverpool were then linked with him. It just I thought, okay, I've got to pay attention to this lad then. So, but I mean, I mean, in in the summer, Everton were doing all they yeah. they were trying to move heaven and earth to to, to sign him. I remember thinking it's so crazy. If they if they're doing this much, he must be a real player. Then you say Spurs came on the scene, but before that, we'd seen a glimpse of him in the Champions League. I actually thought at Anfield he he looked really good on the eye, even in a team that that couldn't do all too much in an attacking sense against Liverpool. But yeah, we've come back round to him just because it's it's such a marvel the the signing, the player, the way in which it was all conducted. And I think the opportunism of Liverpool as well to to wait for Spurs to essentially negotiate, be public about their negotiations and say, 
you told us there was a release clause, actually. You're doing it at this price. We'll take him then. Thank you. And and get the deal done. I mean, it, it, it was a masterstroke. But before we go then, I said I'll get a prediction off you for West Ham United's visit to Anfield. What are you thinking, Josh? Um, I think I'm going to say 2-1, I think. Um, I would like Thiago to play, but I don't think he's going to. And when Thiago doesn't play, I've always got slight concerns about Liverpool's ability to control a match. But I do think Liverpool have enough in this one. And I think Moyes in particular, coming to Anfield, I think he's a bit too inclined to focus far too much on on keeping Liverpool quiet um, rather than actually trying to win the game himself. And I think he's actually got the players to potentially do that. But I think he'll uh, be a bit a bit, a bit more defensive orientated. So I think Liverpool will win. Um, and yeah, I think it'll be able to on something like that. Uh, okay, we'll have to wait and see how it does play out. Then I'll, for the record, just say 2-0. I think Liverpool might now just begin to churn out the clean sheets as we do start to hit, I suppose, just prior to kind of the running time. I think Liverpool Business end. Yeah, maybe start laying down a, uh, a marker or two. But Josh, thoroughly enjoyed your company and looking at Liverpool from a tactical perspective. Uh, thanks for your time, mate. No, thanks for your time, mate. Solid substitute appearance as usual. The Divock Origi role rekindled. <laughs> he got an assist against Norwich, so uh, yeah, maybe that was that was my my role today. But anyway, that's all we time for on this edition of Analyzing Anfield. Thanks for joining us here on the Blood Red Channel. And for myself, Guy Clark and Josh Williams, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red Channel.